This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company this afternoon. I'm Cassie Huff. It's been a little bit of rain here and there, but not a lot by uh, my gauge of what's been happening across the state. Many farmers are, are indeed sowing dry, so soon I'll give you an update on what South Australian farmers' seeding intentions are, including the uptake of genetically modified canola. Our survey of grain growers found that about 38% said they were interested in planting GM canola in the future. So anecdotally, we're hearing that there's a big uptake this season. And it looks like from the feedback we're getting through the survey that um, that may even increase if the seed's available in the coming years. Is that your intention this year? I'd love to know whether you've had a bit of a a look over your neighbour's fence, maybe uh, your neighbour's put in GM canola and you've decided it's something you'd like to give a go or maybe you've gone, mm, maybe not for you. Uh, text me, 0467922891 is the number to text in on. I'll also have some more details on some uh, new uh, import conditions, including some quarantine certificates to help protect Australia against capra beetle, a, uh, a critical pest for the grains industry that's coming up in the next half hour. But first we'll start with dairy because international dairy prices have come crashing back to earth after reaching record highs earlier this year. Twice monthly auction dairy, a global dairy trade or GDT fell 8.5% this week with products like butter, cheddar and fats seeing some of the biggest falls. Michael Harvey, senior analyst at Rabobank, says China's lockdowns and previous high markets are to blame and explained more of this to Warwick Long. It's not not surprising to see a bit of softness in the GDT, but it was probably a bit more surprising to see the magnitude of the fall, Warwick. And, and a lot of it's to do with clearly some some concern and a lot of uncertainty around what's actually going on, um, particularly in China, with with consumer demand given the severity of the lockdown. So yeah, we you know we were of the view that you know some of the fundamentals in the market were likely to see us nearing the peak in commodity pricing for dairy and then starting to get a bit of a correction. We were sort of tipping a bit of a soft landing, which may still play out, but when you get results like that, it does make you reassess just what's actually going on uh, in these markets around the world. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got you've got a lot of uncertainty around China just because of how severe that lockdown is and it actually having an impact on f- the food market locally, um, which is why you get, you know, the correction that you got on the GDT overnight. So we've had record high prices this year on global dairy trade and now we've we've seen a, a couple of falls and an eight and a half percent fall last night is it all down to china or are there other factors at play here oh there's, there's other factors at play i mean clearly prices got to the level where there was always going to be some resistance from buyers around the world because these are you know they were if not record levels very near record levels for the most of the major commodities so you're clearly going to test demand in the value chain in, in a lot of emerging markets around the world, and that's part partly of the story as well. Um, so, it, but it is it's about that cautiousness around demand because the the supply story is still pretty weak and underwhelming in terms of how how strong milk production is around the major export regions. There's certainly some signs that supply is heading back towards growth, but right now there isn't a lot of supply around in the global market. It's more just a demand response and a demand pushback to these very high prices. 
Does this mean you're expecting more falls on things like GDT and in other areas of the international dairy market? Yeah, fundamentally, we still think there's correction to come in the commodity pricing market uh, over the next sort of six months on the back of, you know, we don't think China will be buying as much product this year as they did last year. We also still think that there'll be, by the second half of this year, supply growth will have returned into positive territory, off a low base and at a modest rate, and you've still got demand, you know, rationing in other markets around the world. So there's still the three key factors why we're expecting a correction and we're certainly expecting more to come out. Um, but, you know, the GDT can be a bit jumpy as well. Um, so we're not expecting it to be a, a linear correction. And, and, you know, we're always keeping an eye out for that volatility. But that's that's still the fundamental, you know, view that we've got aware, around where the market goes to from here. So opening dairy prices have already been announced by some processors in Australia. Bega, for one, have announced that they've had their, their highest opening ever will be coming in the next financial year. Um, I'd imagine that that's given confidence to some dairy farmers, but should they be worried that a correction might come before the start of the next season? Oh, I think they need to be aware of what's going on globally with the price of milk. I mean, you're right, it's record pricing and record timing for those prices. So a great level of comfort and security around milk price for the next season for dairy farmers. And that, that's a long way out from, and a lot can happen in global markets between now and the end of next season. But there's clearly price risk in the supply chain. But that's, you know, that's sitting with the dairy companies to manage right now. What do you think this means for Australia? I suppose there's a couple of things at play here. There, there's some companies that have contracts that take into account the, the international price of milk on things like GDT. And there's also some of the things that fell significantly last night in the in the event were things like butter which and cheddar, which Australia trades as well. So from your perspective, what do these falls mean for the Australian market? When you're looking at just one GDT result in isolation, not a lot. But when you're looking at the trend around where things go through between you know now and the end of next season, which is June 30 next year, uh, you, do, you need, do need to keep an eye on what the, the commodity price and what you know how the bulk ingredients are performing. So it's about just being aware that you know when you're looking at where the milk pricing signals are already at for next season, that they're great price signals and they're going to provide good cash flow up front. But expecting higher prices or milk milk prices to move higher from where they start next season will depend on what happens with global market settings. And you're likely to, well, you need prices to at least hold at current levels or move higher. And that's not what we're sort of seeing at the moment. So be alert, but not alarmed and maybe don't expect to step up. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the market will work. If the global market conditions and the market returns uh, deliver a better farm gate milk price, that, that will flow through to farmers. So there's, there's always comfort that I think the market works. But yeah, just be a little bit more cautious around budgeting and planning for, for step ups from these very high opening prices that we're going to see. Michael Harvey, Senior Analyst at Rabobank, speaking with Warwick Long there about the international dairy prices. They certainly have been very high recently. To grains now and uh, some more import conditions, including new quarantine certificates, have been introduced to help protect Australia against capra beetle. The capra beetle is the most critical pest of concern to the grains industry and could cost billions of dollars if it was found here. Uh, Peter Creaser is the Acting First Assistant Secretary for the Biosecurity Plant Division for the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. And he says they've been working on capra beetle regulations for a few years now following increased detections at the border. We've introduced um, two new measures. Um, what they are are changes to the requirement on quarantine certificates and it includes coverage of seeds for sowing but also other risk goods such as spices, dried fruit and vegetables and nuts. 
What does yeah. that essentially mean for what's coming into Australia and what you want to stop from coming into Australia? So what we identify is that there's two primary pathways for capra beetle to come into Australia. Uh, one is actually through the movement of goods into Australia. So that could be imported goods or goods that are brought in by passengers or in by mail. And the other pathway is actually in association with containers. Uh, and in that situation, we refer to them as hitchhikers, where they're not really coming in on the goods per se. They're actually hitchhiking on the containers. That's of concern to us because it's not a pathway that we've necessarily been, I guess, looking at previously. And once we started to see increased detections, we realised we needed to do something about it. So what do you do about the, the hitchhiking on the, the containers? And what actually happens, or what we've found, is that the, the actual the, the beetles themselves will actually hitchhike under the flooring uh, of the container. So the beetles are very tiny. Um, they're probably about the fifth the size of a rice grain. So they can tuck themselves into cracks and under the, under the flooring itself. And so what happens then is that they'll come out from the flooring if there's a food source in the container, which might be a, a sort of a natural food source, but we've also found them in cardboard boxes. So it's, it's quite a challenging problem to actually identify which containers they're likely to be in because they have been associated with, with you know, goods that are being imported into Australia that aren't the sort of goods you'd normally expect to find beetles on. We've also put in measures um, to um, address uh, the container problem, uh, and that includes increased requirements for treatment of containers, particularly where they're coming from uh, a high-risk country. So we classify a high-risk country um, as a country that uh, is known to have capra beetle. And we're also um, identifying particularly containers that are going um, up into rural grain-growing areas as, as a risk and requiring conditions on those containers um, before they uh, you know, are able to actually go to those rural grain-growing areas. If capra beetle got into Australia, what could the cost be to, to the agricultural industry? Uh, look, we, we have done some estimates on that, and we've identified that it could be up to $15 billion um, over 20 years, and that would include for eradication and management and surveillance and also disruption to trade. Because what does it actually do when it, if, if it got here? What could it, what could it do? Yeah, so it's recognised um, to be a storage pest, um, particularly for grains. And so uh, what it can do is actually um, infiltrate silos and they breed very quickly and they will, will actually eat or, or you know use, use that grain as a food source. So they'll consume the grain, damage the grain, uh, and, of course, um, if you've got multiple pests in your grain, then it's not going to be particularly nice for uh, people to use for um, processing or eating. You know, capra is recognised um, in Australia as the most critical um, pest of concern to our grain industry, and we are currently free of capra beetle. Um, that's really important to recognise. We've also been working very closely with a number of trading partners around the world to make it very clear and, and, and to ensure that they're very sure that we really don't want capra you know, in Australia, and we really have an expectation on our trading partners um, you know, to do the right thing in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, containers and, and goods coming to Australia are free from capra. How confident are you that these uh, conditions, these import conditions, will, will prevent them from getting here? Uh, look, we've worked really closely with our scientists. We've worked really closely with industry uh, to you know, come up with a range of conditions that we think will tackle uh, those different pathways that I've mentioned. Uh, that I've mentioned, and look, you know, we'll have to see uh, how how that actually uh, works. But the fact that we have also been communicating to our trading partners around the world highlighted this as a problem around the world that others should be also looking at. Uh, I think is really important. 
Uh, and like you know, to date this year, we've had a we've had a pretty good run. So um, hopefully that continues going forward. Peter Carissa, the acting first assistant secretary for the Biosecurity Plant Division of the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And while we're talking about the grains industry, summer rain and some pretty strong commodity prices mean ninety percent of South Australia's grain growers are anticipating an average or above average season. Now, the survey work was done by Grain Producers SA, and they found from the the farmers they surveyed about seventy three that half the state's farmers haven't actually waited for opening rain. They've kicked off their seeding program already and there's been an uptick in the amount of genetically modified canola being planted and if you're among those people who perhaps wanted to just take a a wait and see approach last year but are diving in this year to GM crops I'd love to hear from you uh, what changed your mind what made you want to go down this path uh, uh, and uh, how you're feeling about it text me 0467 922 891 the CEO Grain Producers SA says that that farmers have uh, reported being quite optimistic but that is tempered by concerns about inputs so seeding's well underway in South Australia. We've got from the survey results about 50% just under that are dry sowing already. So some started before the traditional Anzac Day date that, uh, you know, there's normally a bit of rain that happens at that time. We've still got around 30% waiting for a really good break in rain. So uh, obviously the subsoil moisture is uh, not there for them and uh, waiting for that to happen. And uh, on the positive side, there's around 22% um, in the survey that said that they were sowing into wet soil, which is really positive. So um, that'll be obviously parts of the Air Peninsula um, and other areas of the state that have had a really good drink. The Air Peninsula had some of the biggest rain earlier in the year and as a result more subsoil moisture but where are people doing the dry sowing? So I think there's areas in the Mallian Riverland that we had reports through our survey that they were um, dry sowing probably a lot earlier than, than they have been as well. So example, places like Pinaroo, um, there were growers there still waiting for waiting for some good rains, um, which is not unusual in the Mallee, but um, yeah, normally we'd, we'd hope to have a little bit of subsoil moisture by now. Um, in the mid and lower north, there are reports that um, dry sowing is underway and the southeast had a mix of um, sowing in low subsoil moisture and others were still uh, waiting for rain. Uh, and if we go to the York Peninsula and the Air Peninsula, both are really showing a strong start to the season and there were a lot of growers that were um, sowing into ideal soil conditions and then there are other areas that are still quite dry. So it really is a mixed bag across the state. Um, but the positives are the areas that have had a really good drop of rain. So particularly the Air Peninsula, while there were you know some land that was taken out during the storms earlier in the year, it really set a lot of that region up for um, what will hopefully be a really good year. Well, uh, there is a bit of hope attached to this system coming across the state this week. Who knows how much will be in it, but uh, maybe some of those people who are holding off will get enough in this system. When it comes to what people are actually putting in, what's the breakdown this year? We haven't got the breakdown on um, figures of uh, per variety, but certainly um, we were talking about GM canola earlier, and uh, that's that is in anecdotally a popular demand. So after the first year in South Australia, being able to put GM canola in the ground, a lot of people were watching from over the fence and, and uh, anecdotally 
decided to uh, give that a go. So we're predicting a, a really huge uptake for, for GM canola planted uh, this season. Uh, our survey said that there were about 7% planting for the first time GM canola, so um, we'll wait and see what happens. And obviously with the cost of inputs, um, chemicals, etc., you know, GM canola is using less chemicals, so, um, you know, there are benefits to that. Um, our survey of grain growers found that about 38% said they were interested in planting GM canola in the future. So anecdotally, we're hearing that there's a big uptake this season. And it looks like from the feedback we're getting through the survey that um, that may even increase if the seed's available in the coming years. Grain Producers SA Chief Executive Officer Brad Perry speaking there. If you're among that 7% of people who are looking at putting GM canola for the first time, be interested to hear from you. Tell me why you uh, want to do that. Text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. It's twenty one minutes past twelve. This week on Landline, painting the beauty of the Monero region. I'm just looking and trying to do my best to get the truest picture of this beautiful landscape. And meet the harvest yachty. Being on a yacht, you have to be resourceful, resilient, and that helps on the because you can problem solve when something breaks. That's Landline 12.30 Sunday on ABC TV. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You might have heard uh, lumpy skin disease and some of the measures that are being taken regarding it around lately. It's a virus that causes cattle to develop skin lumps, scabs and ulcers and it's raising some questions in the wool industry, the sheep and wool industry as well. At an Australian Wool Innovation Forum this week, producers heard lumpy skin disease doesn't directly affect sheep but a closely related virus does and so AWI says it reinforces the need for better vaccine production capacity in Australia. Here's director Michelle Humphreys, who is also a sheep vet, explaining what they found in relation to the sheep industry. It is on our doorstep. It's highly infectious and it's been sort of making its way through Asia since 2019. Um, the lumpy skin disease is a disease of uh, all breeds of cattle and water buffalo. It does not infect sheep or humans. It is very closely related to the sheep pox virus and in fact some countries use a sheep pox vaccine to protect their, their cattle against the disease. There has been uh, some discussion about whether those two viruses can merge and recombine so that the um, that virus would affect sheep um, but the the strain of the the virus that's in uh, closest to us in Sumatra uh, does not infect sheep. Um, But needless to say, any disease that comes into Australia has trade implications. And I know that in my business where I export semen, if, you know, there's an outbreak of anything, um, things stop moving to various countries, depending what their protocols are. So um, AWI management will be in close discussions um, continually on this uh, with the government. Um, But one might ask, well, what what can AWI be doing about this? Um, Australia's uh, vaccine production capacity for um, exotic diseases is that there's a, a lack of capacity there. And there's talk of a cost sharing model for developing um, messenger RNA, RNA vaccines um, and a proposal there. So AWI will be 
be looking at that and uh, that will give capacity for vaccines against things like lumpy skin disease, foot and mouth disease, or even endemic diseases like border disease and anthrax. So that's something that we can look at. Dr. Michelle Humphreys speaking online at an AWI forum, uh, I think uh, last night or the night before, uh, just updating the industry on, on where lumpy skin disease sits from a sheep point of view. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now because uh, there's a, a bit of uh, rain around, a bit patchy, but Simon Timke, a senior forecaster, can explain what's actually happening. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So where where is rain falling and is there much in this? Look, it... it... It does vary a bit from spot to spot. We're in a quite a cold, unstable air mass over the, uh, uh, I guess, the southeastern quarter of the uh, of of the state. Um, we had that cold front move across late Tuesday, and we've had this massive cold air, cold, unstable air push up uh, in the wake of that front. So we've seen some pretty low minimum temperatures. Um, quite a few spots were uh, colder than two or three degrees this morning. So pretty cold start. And, and a pretty cold day as well. Uh, a lot of places probably have their coldest day of the year so far today. And there are plenty of showers around, but as always with showers, you know, it's a little bit hit and miss. Some places will pick up a little bit more than other places and and some places may may not even see a shower today. But there's certainly potential for showers over, over the agricultural area, um, far south of the pastoral districts and the west coast district but uh, the further inland you go the the less likely those uh, those showers become having a quick look at some of the rainfall totals up to 9am this morning um, for the 24 hours up to 9am this morning Goolwa uh, at the barrage had 19 millimetres, Hindmarsh Island 17, uh, Port Germain 16 millimetres, Port Pirie 12 millimetres uh, and that's that's sort of an area that we have seen quite frequent showers sort of pushing up both Spencer Gulf and Gulf St Vincent in that southwesterly airstream. So those sort of uh, bits of, of the northern parts of the Gulf there are picking up quite a bit. But quite quite widespread areas have picked up 5 to 10 millimetres in the last 24 hours and, and most districts have received something at least uh, across the south. I think conditions staying staying dry in the, uh, in the far north uh, and, and that's the, the story for the next few days really where that, that shower activity will be concentrated over the agricultural area uh, and West Coast District for tomorrow as well uh, and it'll be a similar sort of day although temperatures probably a tiny bit higher on Friday than, than those of today as that coldest air contracts over to the uh, eastern states tomorrow. In that cold air today, still a chance that there could be even a little bit of light, uh, small hail in some of those showers over sort of central and eastern parts of the uh, uh, agricultural area, but that will all contract eastwards tomorrow as well. And there have been some very isolated uh, thunderstorms over waters to the south of Kangaroo Island and just off the lower southeast coast. So I expect that to continue just over the water area, maybe about the coastal fringe, but inland parts mostly uh, thunderstorm free. Uh, over the weekend, I think we'll we'll see um, those showers gradually contract southwards and and become less frequent, so that by Monday, dry conditions expected right across uh, South Australia, and uh, and then we'll see a, a little bit of shower activity start to uh, redevelop in the far northeast of the state on Tuesday extending over eastern parts of the pastoral districts on Wednesday uh, and then on Thursday see some showers push into the, the west of the state as the next change moves across. Um, but, but certainly the next uh, couple of days still a bit showery about the agricultural area, in particular the southern agricultural area and, and about those uh, um, 
parts of the mid-north and the Flinders districts adjacent the uh, northern end of the gulfs there. A couple of cold mornings still on the way. I think Friday and Saturday morning in particular we'll see some fairly low minimum temperatures again. So uh, a cold and, and frosty start in some parts. And I think over the next few mornings a chance of seeing a little bit of patchy fog around the place as well. But uh, looking at those uh, those rainfall totals for the period out to, to midnight Monday and including those showers today, generally 2 to 10 millimetres over the southern agricultural area, totals less over the northern agricultural area and, and the west coast district, I think generally less than 2 millimetres or so, uh, and just a few spots reaching the far south of the pastoral districts. Um, uh, and over those areas, uh, the Windward Gulf Coast, sort of adjacent parts of the mid-north and and Flinders districts and the southern Mount Lofty Ranges the, and the sort of coastal fringe of the lower southeast district. I think higher totals possible in the order of 10 to 25 millimetres there, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Simon Timkey. Tom and Timke, the uh, duty forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, it will be sunny. And you mentioned some fog there. There's also some fog in the far west uh, the Upper West and a chance of fog in the southeast in the early morning tomorrow morning. Overnight temperatures will fall to about 5 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 18. The Lower Western will be partly cloudy. There will be some patches of frost and a chance of fog in the northeast in the morning. Overnight it'll get down to 3, but the daytime temperatures will reach around 17 degrees. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. We've spoken a lot about the worker shortage and what it will take to get crops picked in this state on this program. And it seems some of the measures being put into place are bearing fruit. Soon you'll hear from one of South Australia's largest horticulture and vegetable companies about how their Pacific Island workers are shaping up. This year's looking a lot better than it has the last couple of years with COVID. There's a lot more certainty in being able to get workers. But in saying that, a couple of countries in the last number of weeks have halted workers being able to come to the country, but that seems to be working itself out. More on that soon. I'll also have an update on the Japanese encephalitis cases in South Australia as well. But we'll find out what's making news, first of all, with Patrick Martin. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Safe Work SA has defended not prosecuting an Outback Health Service whose employee was murdered while on the job, saying there was no reasonable prospect of conviction. Gail Woodford was raped and murdered by Dudley Davey while working as a nurse for the Nunapa Health Council at Freegon on the APY lands in 2016. Safe Work SA says its decision not to pursue legal action for a breach of the Work Health and Safety Act came after a year-long investigation and legal advice. Another 3,894 new cases of COVID-19 have been reported in South Australia, as well as another four deaths. All four people were aged in their 80s. There are 218 people with the virus in hospital. 11 of those are in intensive care and one person is on a ventilator. And in the AFL, Adelaide Crows coach Matthew Nix will miss Sunday's game against Carlton because he has COVID-19. In a statement, the club says he's feeling okay but disappointed to be missing the game in Melbourne. Senior assistant coach Scott Burns will take charge of the team. No other coaches or players have been affected at this stage. I'll have more ABC News at one o'clock.
Thanks for that, Patrick. Now, the Australian Alliance for Animals says the Labor Party has confirmed it will phase out the live sheep export industry if it wins power at the federal election. Up until now, the federal shadow agriculture minister, Julie Collins, has refused to confirm the party's live export policy position, saying an animal welfare policy will be released in coming weeks. Uh, It could even be released this week, we're, we're led to believe, as well. But it appears that the party has revealed its policy in a survey conducted by the Australian Alliance for Animals and the Alliance's Jed Goodfellow says Labor has made its position clear. Yeah, the Labor Party's uh, responded to our survey on key animal welfare policies uh, recommitting to phasing out the live sheep export trade. They haven't put a timeline on that, so that effectively doesn't meet the policy that we were putting to them of phasing out the trade within three years. So we're recognising the policy by recording an amber tick for that position rather than a a green tick on our our scorecards. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it is pleasing to see that Labor is recommitting to that policy. And was this completed, this um, questionnaire, was it completed by uh, the Labor Party headquarters or Julie Collins, the Shadow Agriculture Minister personally? Where did it come from? The Labor Party headquarters. So we wrote to the headquarters of all the major parties and also many of the minor parties as well. And we were very pleased to see quite a lot of responses coming through. And uh, and certainly um, the Labor Party is not the only party that's supporting this policy. The Greens, of course, the Animal Justice Party, the Sustainable Australia Party and a number of other parties are also supporting it, plus uh, many of the incumbent and also the new uh, independents uh, supporting the policy as well. What were the range of questions you were asking? We had four key policies that we put to the parties and candidates, one being the phase out of live sheep exports, another being setting up a national commission of animal welfare to oversee the development of national animal welfare standards. Uh, Another policy was to establish a national animal welfare fund that could be used to invest in both public and private initiatives to improve animal welfare standards. And the final policy was uh, recognising animal welfare within a ministerial portfolio, uh, within the title of a ministerial portfolio to elevate the importance of of animal welfare within government. Why is your organisation, your alliance, still adamant that it wants to end the live sheep trade, especially when you consider over recent years the number of reviews into the industry, the regulation. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries in the country right now. There's a moratorium on the trade for sort of three-ish months during that Northern Hemisphere summer. And in recent years, the deaths on board have been minimal. Yeah, I mean, it's been positive to see the the reviews, uh, but those reviews have confirmed that during the entire period of May to October, uh, sheep will continue suffering heat stress when going into the Middle East climate. And, and that's only going to be getting warmer and hotter as, as years go on. So we don't see that the trade can take place um, in accordance with acceptable animal welfare standards. So um, our, our policy is to see that the live sheep trade is transitioned away from towards uh, more domestic processing. And and indeed, I mean, we, we see that the trade very much has, has reduced significantly over the last several years. It's at the lowest numbers now since the 1980s. And the number of sheep going into the trade right now could easily 
be processed uh, within the domestic processing sector. So your aim then, the Alliance's aim would be to target the sheep trade first if the Labor Party is successful and wins the election on May 21 and then you'd start chipping away at ending the cattle trade, the live trade. Well, it's not an either or proposition for us. We have a policy of, of um, moving away from, from live exports in its totality. So so it's not like we're going for one and then the other. Uh, we, we will still be campaigning to end the live cattle trade as well. That's a, a fundamental policy of our, our members. Yeah, but you didn't ask that specifically in the, the, the no, policy but- questions. Yeah. Because right now, uh, it's it's certainly a much more feasible aim to, to see a transition away from the live sheep export trade. We know that the live cattle trade, of course, because the, the opportunities for uh, domestic processing and, and the market for the, the type of cattle uh, that are exported out of the top end of Australia um, is, is more limited currently uh, for, for that to be transitioned into boxed and chilled meat. But uh, nevertheless, that is still a policy position, position of the Alliance and its members. How confident are you that one day there will be an end to the sheep trade or the live trade is, you know, your organisation's aim, particularly when you look back over the years? And I mean that the industry has been resilient up until this point. And it is still going strong after so much of the drama and the saga that's gone on over the recent years. Yeah, well, well certainly for live sheep trade, we, we think that's on its last legs now, absolutely. I mean, the level of support for phasing out the live sheep trade um, is very strong politically, as we've seen from the responses to, to our scorecard. So uh, we, we would predict, you know, within the next three or so years, um, we uh, have a very good opportunity to see legislation passed to to see the, the trade wound up. Now, live cattle, uh, as I said, um, that's, a, that's a different issue and I think that's going to be a longer-term issue and it will be around for some time to come. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it is a, a policy of the Alliance and our members that uh, Australia moves away from uh, live exports um, altogether. But you could only have that confidence under a, a Labor Party going on the responses from your questionnaire. You couldn't have that confidence under a, a coalition government going forward. Well, it, it depends, I guess. It depends on the parliamentary makeup at the end of the day. Most of the independents, both incumbent and new independents, seem to be supporting the policy as well. So uh, who knows what's going to happen after 21 May, but uh, but it, it, it is really positive to see this level of support coming through for, for that policy. Jed Goodfellow from the Australian Alliance for Animals speaking with Belinda Varishgetti. Now, Labor hasn't confirmed their exact policy with us, but we're expecting to get clarity soon, possibly this week. And you'll also hear from the live export industry uh, on their response to what the Australian Alliance for Animals ha- has said as well. So we'll, we'll get more response on that. Also, a text in on what we were talking about earlier about uh, genetically modified crops this year. And Tim has said that uh, he grew GM canola at Malang last year. Uh, very happy with the yield and oil content and we'll grow again. Thanks so much for your text. Speaking of growing uh, crops, uh, workers are a crucial part of that and uh, worker shortages are still among the biggest issues facing the ag industry. But some relief is coming. About a 1,000 workers from the Pacific Islands are expected to arrive in, arrive in the Riverland this year. Costa Group's South Australian business is one of the major Pacific Island recruiters and HR manager Kelvin Burgermeister told Eliza Berlage about the incoming labour force that's coming in in the next few weeks. 
This year's looking a lot better than it has the last couple of years with COVID. There's a lot more certainty in being able to get workers, but in saying that, a couple of countries in the last number of weeks have halted workers being able to come to the country, but that seems to be working itself out. Both Vanuatu and Samoa have halted workers, but it looks like they've got over that, whatever issues they were there, and they'll be allowing workers in the near future to come, which will be really, really important for our, our harvest this year. Absolutely. Yeah, there was some worries there with border closures. I had heard about Vanuatu, but not Samoa. And so I'm sure that growers around here and uh, some of our sporting teams will be very happy to hear (laughs) that they'll have plenty of guys coming across. So what countries do have workers coming across to work in the Riverland? I believe it'll be the same as previous years. So workers from Tonga, from Fiji, from Kiribati, from Vanuatu, and Samoa. Probably Fiji hasn't been here in the last two years. They're the country that's been caught up last year when we were bringing them over and quarantining them in the Perinka facility. They ended up having an outbreak and their country didn't allow them to come. So they've missed out on two years opportunity of working and making money. So they'll be really eager to get here and, um, and get into it. Any idea about the number of workers that we could be seeing uh, in the Riverland? Costas themselves will be directly employing 360 and then we'll be looking ourselves we'll be looking for another 400 I believe which will bring up to about 750 and I believe the numbers around the region will get closer to a thousand in total I believe in the Riverland region. It's obviously been quite difficult not only getting the workers across but also housing them. What has Costa got lined up to to make sure people have got a place to stay? Housing is the biggest challenge um, with recruiting workers. We've got our housing lined up this season which we've had for the last number of years. Um, I think in the region there still is a bit of a shortage in housing for seasonal workers. We've secured enough beds for our 360 as I said which is fantastic and the rest of the workers that we'll be coming to work on our sites I believe they've got their accommodation sorted. And will you be using that Paringa facility? Yeah we'll be using the Paringa resort facility this season so we'll be there all the way through to um, October, November, which is a fantastic facility for the guys and they really enjoy it coming there and staying there. They think it's one of the best facilities for seasonal workers within Australia. And uh, yeah, of course, we've had a few uh, big changes ahead of citrus season. There was the merging of the two Pacific worker schemes into the one palm scheme. Has that meant much for Costa uh, in terms of uh, any uh, plans, processes, paperwork? Yeah, they announced the the merging of those two schemes together, but the actual practical merge of that is still yet to roll through. So we're yet to see a a, a difference in the way the programs run with the two groups coming together and finalising details. But the hope is that it'll reduce the amount of red tape and paperwork that's required and also prove communication between having one agency instead of two agencies to work with. And uh, yeah, the other big change, of course, uh, just last week, the minimum wage has come in for workers that are working on a piece rate in the horticultural industry. How's Costa gone with getting ready for that big change that's come in? That certainly is a change to what we've had previous years. The major change will be calculating those who do fall below the minimum rate and then having to top them up. So processes had to come into our payroll and system which we've put in place to ensure workers get their minimum rate. So that's the biggest change having a process in place to calculate that every day to make sure workers get their minimum rate. And we're hoping we can bring that in without too many hiccups, but there's bound to be hiccups as you go along, but we're hoping we've got it sorted with technology and those sort of things.
And have, have you had much support from the Government Department Fair Worker with this big change or are there any other further bits of information that uh, you'd like to find out about? There isn't a lot of assistance I think they can give businesses. They've, they've left it to each individual business to work out how they're going to do the process. Obviously, we've gone to seek clarification on certain items of the of what came down from the from the Commission and they've assisted in that. But as far as processes, they've left that up to the individual businesses to work through that themselves. That was Costa Group South Australia's HR manager, Kelvin Burgermeister, speaking with Eliza Burlash uh, on uh, worker shortages. Now, uh, we've had, got an update here on the Japanese encephalitis situation in South Australian piggeries. There have been two more detections since the last update was provided last week. Uh, that brings the total number of cases in South Australia to nine. And South Australia's Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Mary Carr, can explain more. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So what has been found since the the last update? So we've had two more detections of Japanese encephalitis in South Australian piggeries. They are in the Mid-Murray and Loxton-Wakery local government areas. This is not surprising. There's quite a a lag between um, when the pigs were infected and when we actually see the clinical signs in pigs because it is... Um, at the end of their pregnancy when um, they had the mummified fetuses that we find out that they were infected actually a couple of months ago. And that does um, match up with the time where we know that uh, Japanese encephalitis was uh, circulating in the environment. So back in February um, is the, the time period we're looking at these pigs being infected. So it's not alarming given the weather has cooled off and that was expected to, to see less cases being found. That's exactly right. So what we're not seeing is um, any uh, acute um, presentations of Japanese encephalitis that might have been uh, recent. These are very historical. A couple of months ago, uh, as expected, with the weather cooling off, we are seeing our mosquito numbers drop. And in particular, the types of mosquitoes, what we call the uh, the warmer weather mosquitoes, which Culex annulostris, the vector of this um, of Japanese encephalitis, uh, doesn't like the cool weather, so it does tend to disappear. And these were uh, found in piggeries, so no more other animals like the, the alpaca that was found uh, about a month or so ago. No. So we, we expect the, the, the date for around the time that the alpaca was infected was in February, perfectly times with um, the lag that we see with these pigs um, for the circulation of the virus occurring. So what do you want people to, to um, be wary of going forward, given it is getting colder? It is getting colder, but we do still um, want people to be just a little bit alert to this virus still. We don't know everything about it and the way it behaves in in Australian conditions. So we are asking people to still monitor for mosquitoes on their properties and to uh, eliminate those breeding places. There are some cooler weather mosquitoes um, that may still be a bit active. Uh, We still recommend that people are preventing themselves from getting mosquito bites, their animals as well. Um, And we do ask that if someone is seeing something uh, unusual, uh, that they report those diseases into um, in animals into us um, or call their private veterinarian. So we still are running surveillance programs where we are covering the, to- the cost of testing um, both horses and um, pigs and other animals if they are having signs of, uh, of an encephalitis. Um, they can ring the emergency animal disease hotline, which is 1800 675 888 um, and um, report that case in.
Thank you so much for your time today. That update on the Japanese encephalitis situation in South Australia. Dr Mary Carr, South Australia's Chief Vet Officer there, and uh, as she said, the latest detections are in the Mid-Murray and Loxton Wakery local government areas, but uh, they are historical. So uh, this cold weather, um, so we'll, we'll sort that situation out. Uh, so ho- hopefully no more cases. It's certainly been a worrying situation, particularly for pig owners in this state and indeed interstate as well. I'm Cassie Huff. It is 12 minutes to one. Come over to the sunny side now. Australia, a great place for families. Opportunity for you. Afternoons with Sonia Feldhoff. The South Australian government is trying to bring back backpackers and they're doing it by incentivising, subsidising, paying for the rest of their ticket. So is it going to make a difference? Is this the key that could turn things around in what's been a pretty shaky few years? Sonia Feldhoff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Uh, an interesting project now, quite a, a fun project that's planned for South Australia. They've unveiled some plans for a big multifaceted tourism development for Kapunda. Now, it's a tourism plan linking the pastoral history of South Australia and Sir Sidney Kidman. Now, expressions of interest are open for the project, which could include a, a drover's encounter, an experience centre, maybe restaurants and, and a stockman's arena. And horse trainer Tom Willoughby has been approached to be involved, and he spoke to Angela Coe about the vision for the stockman's arena. Um, you know, they're, they're looking at spending a quite a substantial amount of money to, to build a to build a complex there to, you know, potentially create some, some shows uh, touching, you know, going back and, and talking about or demonstrating what used to go back on in the day with, you know, the likes of Sir Sidney Kidman and the Dutton family and all the families around um, that Kapunda area just to, you know, bring, uh, you know, educate people on, you know, what used to go back on in the day. And why Kapunda became so famous with through through Kidman and and through the copper mine and and things like that. So their their, their vision there is to you know to open up some awareness and 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 do some good things for Kapunda in the way bringing people to the town um, and giving them something to, to to have a look at. It sounds like it would be a lot of fun to go ahead and watch. What type of stock do you think would be involved? Well, we you know we we've been approached to to do this to see if we'd be interested in running this the the, the stockman side of it and. You know, we, we would look at having a cat, like some cattle, some horses, um, some sheep, um, you know, some shearing demonstrations, cattle working demonstrations, horse, you know, different horse things that we can do, liberty horses, working cow horses, just to, to you know, we I don't want to stem away from what went on back in the day. I want to educate people. So it's going to be, you know, educational on, on, on how it used to work back in, you know, the, the, the late 1800s and, and, and whatnot, and hopefully we can educate people on ha- the way life used to be back then and, and make a spectacle of it so people really enjoy what they see. And, you know, educational, but but a really nice, uh, something to watch and bring the whole family along to. We, we just need, yeah, we need some people to, to, to support it and back it. And I know if we can get the support and the backing, you know, we're, 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 we're more than capable of putting on a, a magnificent show for people to, to, to come and have a look at and, and have a reason to drive to Kapunda and not just find themselves driving driving through and um, going somewhere else. They've actually got a reason to come to Kapunda and enjoy enjoy what we have to offer. 
So then looking at what it would mean for people today in Kapunda, what employment would it offer local community or those who decide to, to set down roots in Kapunda to work there? Yeah, so like Kapunda, it's it's Kapunda's going absolutely mad at the moment. It's it's really booming. There's a lot of lot of work getting done around there, and it, it'd just be a you know a great thing. There'd be so many it, it, this if this comes off, it's going to be such a great um, employment opportunity for the town and offer a different aspect um, to you know just a general job. There's going to be um, horses, cattle. Um, there's just got, there's going to be hundreds of jobs um, on offer. Um, which will be really, really great for our for our little town that's just going ahead and doing great things. And what did you think when you were first approached to get involved in the project? Yeah, I, I, I was all in. Um, you know, I put all my chips on the table and said, I, I want to know more about this. There's nothing like it in SA. You know, it's it's the, the way we're talking about going is going to be similar to what happens on the Gold Coast on the, in the Outback Spectacular. So it'd just be fantastic for for not only Kapunda, but our, our whole state to, to be able to offer something so big and, and so spectacle for people to come and see. Uh, and being so close to Adelaide, you know, it'd be really, really good to, to get people um, coming back out to the country and touch, and touch and base with their country roots. And when you have people who come into South Australia or from interstate or abroad maybe, then that gives them another reason to spend another day in, the, in that lower uh, mid-north area, Barossa area as well? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, the Bross is already so so established um, around the world, um, but we, we're only a, sto- a stone throw from Barossa, from the Barossa, so it'd be, you know, it'd be fantastic. We feel like we've just been missing out on on um, a few things that and tourists and, and people and jobs and everything that the Barossa gets. Well, Kapunda's just a stone throw away and has so many amazing things to offer people, and then if we can get this up and running, it'll be so much better again. It'll be really great for... Like I said, the town, the state, tourism, everything. Tom, your family in itself have been pretty important in the pastoralist, uh, I guess, scene of South Australia. Can you give me a little bit of history of your family? Yeah, so, you know, the the, the Willoughby name is quite well known across Australia, I suppose, um, for being stockmen and horsemen. And it started back with my, my grandfather. He's also Tom Willoughby. You know, he was sort of a very famous rodeo competitor, camp drafter, horseman, known known Australia wide. And you know, between my father Jim, Uncle Bill, Uncle Greg, and Auntie Julie, we've just they they kept the Willoughby legacy going. And you know, I've just felt like it's been upon myself to to live up to the name that my my grandfather created, and my 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 dad and uncle and auntie have, have kept going. So you know, they've they've been such you know dad and my two uncles and and my auntie have just been so successful in the horse industry you know not only in SA but but Australia wide so you know I I feel like at the end of the day I didn't have much choice on what I was going to do when I when I grew up but I I love every part of it I love um, I'm very very lucky to to be born into a family um, with such a great legacy and it's it's just up to me now to, to keep it going. And a lot of that, um, I guess, notoriety that comes along with some of the work that has happened with your family on SA Productions, uh, the McLeod's Daughter, a pretty famous one. Yeah, like McLeod's Daughter is one of the sort of last ones my family did, you know, but 
back in the day, I know Uncle Bill and, and my dad, Jim, you know, they started on like way back robbery under arms, breaking Morant, light horse, quickly down under. There's not too many Australian movies with horses in them that, that, that a Willoughby wasn't involved in, you know, so we've, that's another side of what we do to training horses and, and whatnot. And, you know, McLeod's Daughters was one of the, the, the latest ones. And we've done a couple of movies since called High Ground, Sweet Country. Mm. Uh, where we supplied horses for them and you know it's just a, it's a really it's really cool we train horses for a job and then we get phone calls to go and supply horses on on movie sets and it's really really rewarding to to be able to do a job like that and some of those movies are my favorites that was horse trainer tom willoughby speaking with angela Coe about a tourism development at capunda a town about a, an hour north of adelaide just just north of the barossa so uh be interesting to follow how this plan goes so, Finally today, just before I let you go, you might be interested to know it's olive season and uh, while uh, there's been a little bit of rain around, olive growers are actually hoping it'll uh, back off a little bit, probably the only people really in farming at the moment. Viva Olives source their fruit from the Mallee and they, they process it in the Riverland and Director Terry Moe tells, uh, Mao tells uh, Eliza Berlage that after a record crop last year, yields this harvest are expected to be down but that the quality is high. We do two types of olive processing. We process olives for table olives and we process olives for oil. We've been processing the table olives for the last five weeks and the week, last week we started processing our olives for oil. How's the quality looking like so far? The quality is looking excellent this season. The quantity not so good, but the quality is excellent. How much of a difference has there been in, in the quantity? We had a really heavy crop last year and olives, like a lot of crops, tend to be biennial bearing. And we've got a lighter crop this year uh, as opposed to the bumper crop we had last year. But the compensation for that is the olives are bigger and quality-wise, they're great. What are you sort of seeing so far in some of those flavour profiles? The flavour profiles, I mean, the olive the table olives are still too early. Uh, they're still quite bitter with the uh, luripin, which is the substance that makes uh, olives very bitter on the tree, and that needs to be fermented out before they're very palatable. So we're a little bit uncertain. They look great, but we're probably a, a month or two away before we decide whether they taste great or not, but every indication uh, they will be. And our olive oil is tasting really nice. It's not a... Uh, this year isn't a very robust uh, olive oil, by robust, I mean it doesn't have as much peppery finish in the mid and the back palate um, as some other years do. And it's uh, it's been a cooler summer. I know in the Riverland and Mallee we haven't had the rain that a lot of places have had, but we have had a, a cooler summer overall. Uh, what has this meant for the fruit? I don't think it's had a, a big impact on the fruit in terms of the, the quality profile we're seeing so far. So we shall wait and see. But to date, everything seems to be travelling well from that point of view. I had heard some plans uh, previously about possibly expanding some of um, the olive oil production at Viva. Yeah, has there been any, any progress or changes made in the last uh, sort of eight months or so? Not in the last eight months um, because we have been aware that we've been going into a sort of a, into a, a lower yield year this year. Um, we expanded the facility in the 12 months previous to this, so we put in an extra 160,000 litres of oil storage just over 12 months ago, but in the last eight months we haven't and we're looking at further improvements uh, in gearing up for the harvest for next year, which we are hopefully anticipating will be another every year again. 
Viva Olives director Terry Mao speaking there with Eliza Berlage about the olive harvest that is underway in South Australia at the moment. And Sonia Feldoff is with you after the news. What's happening, Sonia? Well, we're going to take a look at this re- the, the reignition of a debate about diverting Handorf's main street from traffic after an awful series of events yesterday with a wayward gate on a trailer. We'll tell you more about that. Uh, But also today, we're looking at what feels like to be stalked. We hear about stalking with a woman who actually experienced it for nearly a year. My goodness. Uh, Keep listening to ABC Local Radio. There's lots more coming up. Right now, though, it is coming up to news time as it is almost one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.